If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers and their whole outlook on life, it means that they do not understand Christianity very well at all. Here's a question I want to begin with in light of that quote this morning. How much do you make of the thought of being God's child and of having God as your father? How big a deal is that in your world? It's my concern that we have reduced our understanding of God as our father to less than it should be in our thinking today. And our passage this morning is here to help us correct that and to make this truth of having God as our Father something we delight in and live in the goodness of every day. Now, why is it important for us to rediscover this identity? Why is it really essential to live in the goodness of being children of God if we are in Christ? Well, largely because our surrounding culture is experiencing what we could call a crisis of identity. John Calvin has said, without knowledge of God, there is no true knowledge of the self. Essentially, he recognized that if we remove God from our society, then we begin to lose a sense in society of who we are. We have seen this happen all around us in Belfast and in our wider society. There is so much angst out there in the surrounding culture as people try to find themselves, to find who they are, what their identity is, to find purpose, a sense of worth, a sense of security, and to try and find it without any reference to God. There's so much angst just over the question, who am I? And in light of this confusion in our surrounding culture, we have an incredible opportunity as Christians to demonstrate the joy and peace and security that comes from the given identity we have in Christ. In Christ, we are sons of God. We are loved. We have security. We know real meaning and a sense of worth. For a world experiencing an identity crisis, the church has good news. But that witness begins first with us knowing and living in the goodness of this identity. And that's what our message this morning is all about. If I was to summarize what Paul is saying in Galatians 3, 25 to 4, 7, I would summarize it like this. Paul is saying to the Galatians and us, remember who you are. No longer slaves, but sons. No longer slaves, but sons. And essentially what Paul says is if you're really going to appreciate this identity, then you need to remember the following three things. Number one, remember what you were before Christ. 
Now, our passage this morning is one of these book-ended passages in Scripture. There are two statements that are very similar at the beginning of the passage and the end of the passage that really show us the main message of the passage. If you look at verse 25, Paul says, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Think a prison warden. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. Then jump down to chapter 4, verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So 3.25, no longer under this prison warden who's watching your every move. You're free and you're a son. And then 4.7, no longer a slave, but a son. And you can see that that encases our whole passage and so gives us the main message that Paul wants to make. Now, lest we get too far ahead of ourselves, all I want us to see here is that when Paul says, in Christ you're no longer a slave and no longer under a guardian, what he's saying here is that he views any person who is outside of Jesus Christ, that is, not a Christian, they're slaves. Now, I hope you see the logic there. In Christ, you're no longer a slave, so what does that mean Paul thinks you are before you're in Christ? A slave. Now, we've seen this already in the letter to the Galatians. Last time in the first part of chapter 3, Paul showed how the Old Testament laws had an imprisoning effect on humanity. Essentially, Paul says there in chapter 3, the first part that we looked at over the past couple of times we were in the book, he says, the law made us like an archer, someone who's doing archery, and there's a big target. And in the middle of the target, you have these words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then the next circle, you've got this, love your neighbor as yourself. But because our arrows are weighed down with sin, they always fall short. We don't hit the mark. We fall short. And Paul said, because of that, we have failed to keep God's law, and we are under the curse of the law. Because anyone that fails to keep it is under the curse of the law. That's what he said in chapter 3, verse 10. We've been brought under the curse of the law because of our failure to keep it. In 3, verse 22, he said, because of this failure, we are imprisoned under sin. We can't meet God's standard. We're imprisoned because of our sin. The arrows don't even miss the mark. They fall short of the mark. And then in verse 23, he said of chapter 3, we're held captive under the law. He really wants us to understand that without Christ, we are slaves of sin. and We can't do anything about it. He illustrates this in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. This is an interesting picture he uses. It's a picture of a child who's growing up in a wealthy home who is heir of the family estate. This son has good things coming to him in the future. But while he is under age, while he's a child in the family home, he's kind of just like a slave. He's controlled by those over him, ordered around by his instructors. He's disciplined. He has no real freedom. If he puts a foot out of line, he's in trouble. 
Verse 3, in verse 3, Paul says, look, in the same way, before Christ came, we were kind of like this child. Good things to come. But before they came, we're, we're like slaves. He says in verse 3, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. It's a bit of a difficult phrase to understand, but we're really helped by chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. That helps us to see what Paul's getting at. In chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, Paul rebukes the Galatians for turning back to what he calls the weak and worthless and enslaving elementary principles of the world. And then in verse 10, he says what, what they're doing. You're observing days and months and seasons and years. Now, what's he saying? He's saying essentially, look, you're going back to a system that is built on trying to earn your way to God by doing all the right things. You're saying, if I keep this special day and if I don't eat this or I do eat this, all of those things are going to merit you, gain you a right standing with God. But that's the very system that enslaves you. Because if you start to think I can earn my way to God if I'm only good enough. How will you ever know if you've been good enough? In fact, you won't be good enough because God's standard is a perfect standard. And so you try to get into a place where you're trying to earn your way to God, you're just back in slavery and fear. So Paul says, before Christ entered your picture, you were a slave to sin, held in its bondage, like a prisoner on death row under the curse of the law because of your failure to keep it. You broke the law, you're in prison on death row, sitting there waiting for the day when your execution will come. And here's the worst thing. When you were in that state, Paul says elsewhere, you were totally blind to the fact that this was your reality. Walking around as if everything was good, Probably some vague assumption, if, I, if I'm a good person, God will not condemn me. Totally blind to the reality that you're in slavery to sin, separated from God, and under his condemnation and judgment. I remember in the movie, this is my favorite movie, The Matrix, the character Neo was enslaved to a world of computer-generated make-believe. His body was asleep. He was like a slave to all these robots that had taken over the world. And while his body slept, the robots projected into his mind this dream world that he lived in. But he didn't realize that the world he was in was generated like a dream. He thought it was real. And so into that dream world enters this savior figure called Morpheus. And he entered into the dream world to let Neo know that he could be set free from this world that was not real. But Neo refused to accept it. He said, no, you're talking rubbish. This is real. I'm not a slave. And Morpheus said, you are a slave. And in actually a very powerful moment of the movie, Morpheus says to him, Neo, you are a slave. You need to free your mind. And eventually, Neo is liberated, and he starts to see that the whole world that he knew wasn't real. Listen, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you are a slave. You are in a world of your own make-believe, 
What is really real is that you are a sinner, separated from your maker. You need to free your mind. You have been made by God for a relationship with God. He is the author of your life. Only knowing Him, that is life. You need to be set free. If you're here and you're a Christian, remember, remember, this is what Paul's doing. Remember what you once were. You were once in darkness. You were once in that prison. You were once under the curse and condemnation of God. You didn't even know it. And you would still be in that darkness if God had not done something to come and rescue you. And that is where Paul goes next. If you're going to really appreciate your identity as no longer a slave but a son, you need to remember what you once were. But second, you need to now remember and acknowledge what God has done to change this situation. You need to always remember the glory of what God has done to save you from slavery. In verses 4 and 5, Paul makes five statements about the coming of Jesus that teach us so much about what God did to save us from our bondage and slavery to sin. Statement one. He makes a statement on the timing of the coming of Jesus. Verse four, when the time had fully come, when the fullness of time had come. Now, let's just reflect on that. Do you ever wonder why God picked the particular moment he did to send Jesus into the world? Some say, well, it's because of all the Roman roads. And that made transport easy to get the gospel out there. Some say, well, it's because Greek was the common language. And therefore, the gospel could get out there quickly. And I sort of say to that, well, I get what you're saying, but why not today? The roads of the internet would get the message out pretty quick. Think about it. Today, people could have taken videos with Jesus, selfies with Jesus, uploaded videos of him doing miracles to Facebook or wherever you put them these days. The answer to the question, why did God pick the particular moment in history to enter the sun, to bring the sun into history? The answer is we don't know. But it was the moment that God had appointed the moment that God the Father deemed it appropriate to initiate the work of redemption in history. After a statement on the timing of his coming, Paul makes a statement on the origins of Christ's coming. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Now this is pretty simple, but the fact that the Son was sent from the Father shows that the son existed before he was born as a baby in Bethlehem. This little statement, God sent forth the son, declares the divine nature of Jesus Christ, the son of God. He was the only one who could break us out of slavery. That is to say, only God could liberate us from our bondage and sin. God broke through enemy lines. God entered our state of slavery 
to liberate us from slavery. The third statement on the coming of Jesus speaks of the manner of his coming. God sent forth the Son, born of woman. Now, where the words sent forth imply the divinity of Christ, the words born of a woman imply the true humanity of Christ. The divine Son of God, the eternal Word of God, became flesh. That is, he took on our humanity so that he could liberate our humanity from the emaciating effects of sin. The answer for our problem of incarceration in sin was the incarnation of the Son. That's the manner of his coming. Then fourthly, we see the condition of his coming. He was born under the law. That is, Jesus was subject to the Old Testament laws of Moses. Throughout his life, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, where all others had failed to do so. He lived under the law. He died under the law. He took the curse of the law to liberate us from its consequences and the consequences of our sins. The fifth statement then about the coming of Christ is where I want to spend most time here. Paul, in verse 5, speaks of the purpose of his coming. And that purpose is twofold. Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law, purpose one, so that we might receive adoption as sons, purpose two. Under purpose one, we see God sent Jesus to redeem. That word literally means to set free a slave by the payment of a price. In the ancient world, a slave could be liberated if someone was willing to buy them out of slavery. That is exactly what Jesus came into the world to do. He paid the price to set us free. Peter tells us in his epistle that he didn't pay with silver or gold to redeem us, but he redeemed us with his own precious blood, that is, by his death. His divinity meant that he had the power to redeem us and reconcile us to God. His humanity meant he could enter our plight and liberate us from the inside out. His righteousness meant he was qualified to save us from our unrighteousness. And so in just a few words, Paul has told us how Jesus was qualified to be our Redeemer. He was the Son. He was human, born of a woman. Under the law, righteous, he kept it. He was our Redeemer. He is our Redeemer. His death sets us free from sin. In John 8, 34, Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. But here's what I really want us to see in this statement on the purpose of Jesus coming. His death to redeem us from sin was not the end of our salvation. It was a means 
to a greater end. What's the greater end? Well, this takes us to the second purpose of Christ's coming. Verse 6. He came to redeem those who were under the law. That is, under the curse of the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. God in his grace goes beyond redemption. Redemption was the removal of the shackles of sin that bound us. Redemption was the breaking open of the prison door. The removal of the barricade of sin that blockaded us from a right relationship with God. But God didn't stop at redemption. He liberates us and then he takes these salvaged slaves and he doesn't want us to go out of the prison and just wander around on our own. He gathers us into a family, not just a family, his family. Now you want an illustration of this? Go no farther than the parable of the prodigal son. Do you remember the parable, the younger son wants the father's money early before he dies and he takes it and he goes to a far off place and he squanders it all and he ends up making a complete mess of his life. Then famine comes and he's hungry and he hires himself out as what? A slave. And he ends up in such a miserable position looking at pigs who are the the lowest of the low to him and he's jealous of them because they're eating and he's not. Jesus tells a story to help you to see this guy got himself in a mess. He had left the father. He had rebelled. He had got himself into a complete mess. And then when he was at his lowest, he, we read, the, the, the God, Jesus says, he, when he came to his senses, he said, I'm going to go back to my father's house. Now, I'll probably never be accepted back as a son. And I'll just say to him, Father, just make me like one of your slaves. I'll work for my living. Just make me one of your hard slaves. And then what do we read? The son, as he's coming back home, we read the father is looking. He's looking to the horizon for his son. And as soon as he sees his son, the father does what Jewish men do not do in that culture. He throws all the core and etiquette out the window and he runs. He runs to his son and he throws his arms around him. And what does he say? He says, my son. And then he calls his servants. He says, quick, bring the best robe. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. What was he doing in that act? He was saying, you do not come home a slave. You come home and you are restored to the position of a son. Slaves had bare feet. Slaves did not have robes. Slaves did not have the family ring. The father was saying, and Jesus was saying, when you come home, when you're liberated from the pigsty, you are no slave anymore. You're made a son. Now here is the end of the gospel. The highest privilege that the gospel affords, J.I. Packer says. We get to have God as our father. And Paul's saying, Never forget where you've come from and never forget what God has done to save you. But all of that then brings us to the third thing that we are to remember if we're really going to appreciate who we are as sons in Christ. 
We're to remember what we were, slaves. We're to remember what God has done, redeemed and adopted us into his family. And thirdly, we are to remember who we are now as adopted sons. We are to remember our true identity in Christ. Now, this consists of at least three things that we are to remember. If you want to really remember who you are now, remember these three things. Number one, you are a dearly loved son of the Father. You've got to remember, if you're in Christ, this is who I am. This is amazing. Our Heavenly Father does not just want us to know that we are legally adopted as sons. He wants us to feel the reality and the security of our adoption. So in verse 6, we're told that to help us, He sends the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So in verse 4, we're told that the Father sent the Son to accomplish our redemption and adoption. And now in verse 6, we're told he sends the Spirit to apply our redemption and adoption. The Father knows that we will struggle to accept our new status and our new identity. He knows we'll keep going back to that life living as if we are slaves. So in grace, he sends not just the Son, but the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Son, and notice where he sends him to? Into our hearts. That's verse 6. And what does the Spirit do in our hearts? That is, in our souls, in our innermost being. God takes residence within us. What does the Spirit do? He fosters an intimacy with the Heavenly Father in the deepest levels of our being. He cries out in the most intimate way, Abba, Father. Dare we say it? That's that intimate word, like our word, Dad. Like a compass always keeps shooting back to north. The Spirit within keeps pointing us back to our position as adopted sons. In Romans 8, 16, we read more of this work. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, what I just want you to do is get the heart of the Father here. He doesn't just want you to know in your mind, theologically, that you're a son, positionally. He wants you to feel like a son. He wants you to know the security as a son, the love, the intimacy. And so he puts his spirit, God enters to help you know who you are. Because by yourself, you're going to keep going back to slavish living, thinking I've got to earn my way to get the Father's approval. You have it because of Christ. And the spirit is there working away to help foster intimacy between you and your heavenly Father. This is especially helpful in hard times. 
when you're going through the mill and you're at the end of yourself, to have a moment where you know the Father's heart of love towards you, that he says, I see my child, I know, I love you, I have good plans in this, I'm never going to leave you, I'm never going to forsake you, I'll carry you through. And you, in that moment of your brokenness and weakness, you just, like a door of heaven opening, you experience as the Spirit bears witness that you're a son. You feel it, you know it, you're assured of it, you're secure, you're loved, and Everything else, for a moment, just fades away. wonder when the last time was that you really embraced and received the truth of who you are as a son of the living God. And I think this means if you want to rediscover the beauty of your identity, you must start by crying out to the Holy Spirit to give you strength to really know who you are as a son. Be praying, Holy Spirit, make alive the reality of my sonship. Then you'll know who you are, or better, whose you are. So if you're going to remember who you are now, you need to first remember you're a dearly loved, beloved son of the Father. Second thing to remember as part of that identity, remember that you're one in Christ with a big family, a big family of those who are in Christ with you. United in Christ as sons, you become united together with those who are also united to Christ. That's what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 28, when he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, what he's saying here is that your new identity, son in Christ, it trumps all other identity markers that you have. It's not that all identity markers suddenly disappear. We're still men and women. We're still those with different backgrounds. But all of those other identity markers become relativized and subordinated to your new primary identity, son of God in Christ. And so if you're here this morning, you're a Christian, we are all one in Christ, together, a family. And Sinclair Ferguson, who I heard speaking earlier this week, has pointed out pictures in the Bible, like body and bride and temple, they're all illustrations of what we are as Christians, but family, that is the commanding picture that is used in Scripture to tell us who we are, and more than that, it's not even a picture. It is the reality. Bride, temple, body, they're all illustrations, but family, that's the reality. This is the primary way we should think of the church and the world today. This is the primary way you should be thinking about those who are sitting around you this morning. This is my in Christ family. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's be real. How do you get on when you're in your family? It means sometimes we'll get on like a house on fire. It means sometimes we're going to do each other's head in. We'll frustrate each other. That's a reality. We won't all click We won't all be best chums all the time. That's why Paul says you've got to bear with one another in love at times. 
But there's a bond of love in family. That means we're totally committed to each other. Praying for each other, showing hospitality to each other, in each other's homes more frequently, carrying each other's burdens, interested in each other. This is a great challenge for us in a wee small country like Northern Ireland. Because our family, physical family ties, are quite strong. That's a good thing. Because we're in such a wee place, you know, you can go home to mum and dad on the weekend or wherever your family are. We're very tight in our families. And what I've heard sometimes from people moving into Northern Ireland from the outside, they say that can be quite difficult to break into because everyone has their family system set up. And so when you come in, you sometimes don't know how to fit into that tight little culture. And so I think we've got to keep working really hard together, Great Vic, at not just loving our biological families, absolutely we're called to do that, but let's go the extra mile and try more and more to cultivate a community here that feels more like family. And do you know what I think? Sometimes I feel that the most in our prayer meeting. When people are sharing what's going on, and praying for each other, and last Wednesday we put up some pictures of some of those that can't make it out to church anymore so that we're informed of how we can continue to carry each other's burdens. It's a beautiful thing. It's one of the times where I most feel part of the family. Do you know when else I feel like it? When I'm going through something hard and you know about it and you send me messages. <laughs> or someone just says, look, I know that must be pretty difficult. Or when you're sick and someone turns up at the door and says, here's a wee bag of food to help. You know, wee small things. Now, I'm not saying do that for me loads. Like, go ahead and do it if you want to. But... Let those be things we do for each other. We're family. That's part of who we are. Then finally, and I'm telling you, this just, if it wasn't already good enough, if this identity wasn't already good enough, this third thing that we're to remember just blows the lid off. So let's just recap. We're now those who are dearly loved by the Father. We're one in Christ with an incredible family in, God, in Christ. And now, thirdly, remember this. You're not only sons, you are heirs of an incredible fortune. You have an incredible inheritance ahead. Now you might be thinking, especially if you're a woman here, you might be thinking, hang on, this all feels a bit sexist. Chapter 3.26, you said, in Christ you're sons of God. Chapter 4, verse 5, we're adopted as sons. Verse 7 of chapter 4, we're no longer slaves, but sons. Why does Paul not say we're children of God or sons and daughters of God? Surely that would be more PC in our modern day world. Well, there's very intentionally a reason why he said sons and why I've kept saying sons throughout this message. Paul is making a point about the in Christ family of God all having the status as rightful heirs of all the riches of the father's estate. You see, in the ancient world, women didn't have the rights of inheritance. Only sons did. Daughters did not have the right of inheritance. Only sons did. And that's why Paul is saying 
to men and women in Christ. We're one. We have the same status. Sons. That doesn't mean you're a man. It means in Christ you are one who is in a position of being a rightful heir of the Father's inheritance. It's all coming to male, female. Just what? The only thing that matters is you're in Christ doesn't matter if you're male or female, slave or free, rich or poor, whatever. In Christ, you are made a rightful son. And what he's saying is, you're put in the position in the family where everything that the Father has is coming to you. It's actually the opposite of sexism. So chapter 3, verse 29, if you're Christ You are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Chapter 4, verse 7, if a son, then an heir through God. So think of the logic in the passage. No longer slaves, but sons. Not only sons, heirs. Who's the richest being in the universe with all the treasures of glory and heaven and earth and love and everything we need at his disposal? Our Father. And in Christ, we are his son. Every, every, every blessing, every spiritual blessing, every blessing that the Father has is coming to you. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. If I was sitting where you were sitting right now and I was not a Christian, I would be asking, how do I get in on that? And here's the answer. Chapter 3, verse 26. In Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. Verse 27, those baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Verse 28, all one in Christ. Verse 29, if you are Christ's, you are heirs. And look at those last two words of our passage. After Paul has just said you're an heir, what does he say? Through God. He wants the Galatians and he wants us to know all of this is a gift of God's grace accomplished fully by God, a salvation package, if you will. And how do you receive it? Faith is the hand that receives all of the blessings of God's salvation. You believe and you receive Jesus Christ by faith. And you are in Christ. I hope you've noticed how beautifully Trinitarian this all is. The Father sends the Son to accomplish our redemption and adoption. He sends the Spirit to apply our salvation and adoption. The Spirit of the Son unites us to the Son, and in Him we're made sons. In that place, we experience the Son's intimate longing for the Father through the power of the Spirit. The whole Trinity worked our salvation.
so that we could be embraced into the very family of God. So how do you get in on this? You receive Christ. And remember what Paul has been saying all along to the Galatians? He's enough. He's all you need. Christ is all you need to have all of that incredible blessing to know God as your father, to be liberated from sin, to be adopted into the family of God. All you need is Christ. Paul was saying, dear Galatians, your problem is you've forgotten who you are. And might that be what God through his spirit is saying to you today. You've been living more like a slave before God than a son. Your problem is you've forgotten who you are. running around in the rags of low-level guilt and shame, trying to earn your position with God and not doing too well. If that's you, just turn to Christ again this morning and remember all of who you are in him. No longer slaves, but sons. So this week, if you're going through something and you're feeling it's difficult, Just try to remember, no longer a slave, but a son. If you're at home alone alone with your kids as a young mum, and you're just, you know, it's brilliant, but you're stressed out, and you just feel alone in it, remember, not alone. I'm a son, my father's with me. If you're facing an uncertain medical diagnosis, and you're feeling anxious about your health, or you're just exhausted, caring for an older father or mother or someone who's near and dear to you, Just you keep remembering in that moment, no longer a slave, but a son. Not only a son, but an heir. Oh, Father, help that to be enough in this moment. So let's just go right back to the question I started with. How much do you make of the thought of being God's child and of having God as your father? Let's pray together. Father, it is so incredible that you didn't just send the Son to accomplish our redemption and adoption, but you sent the Holy Spirit to apply our redemption and adoption. And that tells us something about your fatherly heart. You want us to live in the goodness of our identity as your sons, your children. And living in the goodness of that identity will demonstrate to a world experiencing an identity crisis the incredible hope we have a hope that is worth exploring. And so please, this morning, I really pray particularly for the person that's come in this morning and they just feel at the end of themselves. You have them here for a reason, to remind them that you are a loving heavenly Father, that you love them and that they are secure in your love. They have your approval in Christ and are completely accepted in the beloved Son. 
Lord, thank you. And Lord, if there's anyone here today and they're outside of this family, oh, I pray that they would turn away from their sin and from that slavery and they would receive Christ. Just reach out and receive him by faith. Even that is a work of your grace. And so now then, as we respond and we sing this wonderful hymn, And Can It Be, that takes us on a journey through astonishment that the Father would be interested in us, to the incredible work of the Son breaking open our dungeon of sin and condemnation, to the incredible truth that in the Spirit and in His assurance that He works within us, we don't have to fear condemnation anymore, but we are loved and marching confidently towards the throne, our home. Oh Lord, as we respond May your spirit actively work to testify with our spirits that we are indeed children of the living God, sons, heirs. O oh Lord, make it more than just words. Make this reality alive in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand together and respond with this great, great hymn, And Can It Be?
now may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine on you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace in Christ Jesus our Lord.